Good afternoon and good morning to all of you who are out there listening to us broadcasting live from the Thomistic Institute studios at the Angelicum. It's great to have you here. My name is Father Thomas Joseph White, and I'm the director of the Thomistic Institute. And on behalf of all of our professors and staff at the Angelicum, we're so glad to have you here for this inaugural conference online entitled, Is Belief in God Reasonable? Aquinas' Summa, Summa Contra Gentiles in Contemporary Context. Let me just say a few brief words of introduction about our event. It's according to an ancient tradition that uh, really it began just after the death of Aquinas, that apparently he was asked to compose the Summa Contra Gentiles in the late 1250s by the then master of the Dominican order, Raymond of Pintafort, who is one of the preeminent canon lawyers of his era and who is himself a canonized saint. On this account, Aquinas was asked to write something that would be of help to Dominicans who are on mission in Southern Spain, where they would have occasion to discuss Christianity with Muslims and Jews. Whatever the case may be with regard to the story, what Aquinas produced in the 1260s in the four-part series we now call the Summa Contra Gentiles, books one through four, is an amazing work. No doubt of similar value to his other more well-known work, the Summa Theologiae. The Summa Contra Gentiles proceeds in these four parts on topics of God, creation, providence, and the rational defense of the Christian mysteries in that sequential order. And in each of these parts, Aquinas presents developed philosophical arguments for truths that Christians profess, attempting to show thereby the close alignment and compatibility of Christian revelation and natural philosophical reason, while also still allowing that a yet more perfect knowledge of God, the Trinity, and of the creation of the human person in the image of the Trinity is made known to us by way of revelation alone, not accessible by mere philosophy. His is one of the most important works on the philosophical defense of Christianity ever written, and the arguments he employs are no doubt often of contemporary interest even now, as many commentators in contemporary philosophy of religion have noted in recent years. This conference is about just one topic treated in the first book of the Summa Contra Gentiles. It's re is it reasonable to believe in God? And if so, what should we rightly believe about God if we make good use of philosophical reasoning? The preeminent scholars we have assembled for this conference share a common twofold conviction, albeit interpreted in distinct ways by each one, as we'll see on display in these talks. They are each of the conviction that Aquinas made important contributions to the philosophical efforts of human beings to know God, some of which, some of his arguments of which, still stand the test of time. They also are all, all believe that we should seek to do in our time something of what he did in his, that is to say, engage in creative and responsible public argument for the rationality of Christian belief, making use in part of philosophical resources. For this reason, we are privileged and honored to welcome them to speak in this virtual conference of the Angelicum Thomistic Institute. So let me just say a word then about our first speaker. Father Joseph Elul is a Dominican uh, preacher or member of the Order of Preachers and is a lecturer in the Faculty of, Faculty of Theology, both at the Angelicum in Rome and at the University of Malta. And he is indeed of Maltese origin. 
He's also a visiting professor at the Pontifical Institute of Arabic and Islamic Studies in Rome. He is an eminent scholar of medieval Islamic and Arabic thought who has published a great number of scholarly articles on medieval and modern Islam. He has also been deeply invested in and participated in Muslim Catholic dialogue. He is a past member of the Committee for Relations with Muslims of the Council of European Bishops Conferences, and he has been a consultant to the Pontifical Council of Interreligious Dialogue. We are very honored to have him with us today. The title of his presentation is Vetra Novis Augere, Thomas Aquinas and Christian Muslim Dialogue. We're happy to welcome Father Edu. Thank you, Father Thomas. Well, after such a magnificent introduction, I hardly know what to say, but I'll be brave and say something. I dare not say good morning or good afternoon or good evening, but I'll just say hello and welcome. Anyway, as uh, Father Thomas has just said, the um, topic that I have chosen for this uh, inaugural lecture is Vetera Novis Augere et Perficere, Thomas Aquinas and Christian Muslim Dialogue. Now, when Pope Leo XIII's encyclical letter, Eterni Patris, issued on August 4th, 1879, sought to address many issues that were challenging 19th century Catholic scholarship and academic life. In proposing the thought of Thomas Aquinas as a model of Catholic teaching, the Pope intended to, in his own words, strengthen and complete the old by aid of the new, not only by reviving the study of the works and teachings of the angelic doctor, especially in the realm of philosophy, but also to uphold as perennial his method of engaging with his contemporaries within and outside the Catholic faith. It is within this context that we are called upon to reflect upon the appeal, vetera novis augere et perficere. The uh, 13th century was indeed a time of intellectual upheaval. Following the introduction of Aristotle and later on, Averroes, that is to say, Averroes commentaries on his works. They were translated from Arabic into Latin. And this event was met within the ecclesiastical world with a certain apprehension, if not outright fear. Neoplatonic philosophy and its interpretation by Ibn Sina, the Latin Avicenna, was already perfectly acceptable to medieval Christian scholars. The latter was in fact considered as an essential tool for understanding the illuminationist thought of St. Augustine. Etienne Gilson himself even spoke of Augustinisme Avicennisant, Avicennaised Augustinianism. The problem was Aristotle and his renowned commentator Ibn Rushd, who for many scholars of the time, it was a case of a pagan being commented on by an infidel. One must also note, however, that medieval Western intellectuals and institutions were able to encounter 
and adapt the Islamic legacy because they already possessed a sufficient scientific base, with, of course, the contribution of translations of Greek together with Latin works. And the sufficient scientific base helped them to understand, assimilate, and build upon this new knowledge that appeared from the East. In some, medieval Christendom created living, vibrant societies, constantly searching, always discovering something new. In dealing with the specific and delicate subject of Aquinas' dialogue with Islamic thought, it would be necessary to reflect in particular upon two key works of his, namely the Liber de Veritate Catholice Fide Contra Errores Infidelium, a book on the truth of the Catholic faith against the errors of unbelievers, popularly known as the Summa Contra Gentiles, together with his De Rationibus Fide Contra Saracenos, Grecos et Armenos at Cantorem Antiochenum, better known as De Rationibus Fide. At this point, it would also be necessary to articulate the term Islamic thought. Of itself, it should not be identified specifically with Islam as a religion. Rather, it should be considered as embracing classical Greek philosophy as interpreted by the Neoplatonic movement and disseminated through Oriental Christian and Jewish schools of thought. Islamic civilization absorbed these teachings and built its own edifice upon these foundations. Now, the question that obviously pops up is, can one call Thomas Aquinas a model for interreligious dialogue? Proposing Thomas Aquinas as a model for engagement with Islamic thought may raise a few eyebrows, and I'm not surprised at that. Hence, it would be appropriate to, pro to pose an essential question. What type of dialogue existed in medieval times? One should begin with an a priori exclusion of dialogue as we understand it today, given the fact that there existed neither the motive nor the means to implement it. In fact, medieval society was aware of only three religions, the pagan, which had been replaced by Christianity, the Jewish, founded upon the precepts of the first covenant, which, in the words of Aquinas himself, Christ fulfilled by his actions and his teaching, and which was also believed to prefigure the new and everlasting covenant sealed by Jesus on the cross, and finally, the Christian, which believed in Jesus as the final revelation of God to humanity. With such a vision in mind, it is obvious that any doctrine that is not situated within these parameters, or which proposes some form of belief or conduct, which was different, if not contrary, to the Christian vision of God, the cosmos, 
and society would be considered a heresy and this promoter an imposter. Hence, medieval Christendom's hostility towards Islam as a religion. Furthermore, it is necessary to underline the fact that in those times, the existence and dissemination of heresy was not understood as an exercise in freedom of expression, but rather as the cause of social upheaval that could threaten political, social, and cultural harmony, which was expected to mirror the harmony of the celestial realm. Aquinas was undoubtedly a scholar of his times, and the way he expressed himself with reference to Muslims from a purely religious point of view would today be considered as shocking and unacceptable. A cursory glance at what Thomas has to say in his Summa Contra Gentiles, as well as in his De Rationibus Fidei about Islam and Muhammad, can be disheartening to those who choose to take the path of Muslim-Christian dialogue. Certainly, his position concerning Muhammad in Book 1, Chapter 6 of the Summa is, to say the least, brutal. But this is just one aspect of his multifaceted scholarship. We need to recall that the medieval thinker was also a person who had a passion for knowledge. He was always prepared to initiate an exchange of ideas in order to arrive at the truth. Thomas Aquinas was one of the major proponents of such discourse. And it is precisely within this context that we discover in him a man of dialogue, not only with the philosophical currents of his time, but also with the religious, including Islam. The main concern of Aquinas was that of learning from them in his search for the truth. In this respect, he epitomized the medieval respect for learning with his conviction that truth was where one found it. Thus, in the words of David Burrell, he was more inclined to examine the arguments of thinkers than their faith trusting in the image of the creator in us all to search out traces of the divine handiwork. Let's come now to some preliminary considerations concerning the uh, Summa Contra Gentiles. Our point of departure must be the period and the circumstances within which the Summa Contra Gentiles was written. According to Marie-Dominique Chenu, in the 1250s, Arab Islamic culture was already considered the strongest exponent of ancient Greek science and philosophy. In his words, it represented both a threat and a temptation for the Latin West. To his mind, the missionary effort triggered by the Reconquista almost two centuries after the event thus evolved into a new style because Islam showed itself to be not only a military menace, but also a culturally superior civilization. As already stated, 
the works of Aristotle meticulously commented by Ibn Rushd open up for Christian scholars a scientific view of the universe apart from the Bible's religious imagery, a view that necessitated an urgent response on their part. Thus, the Christian missionary spirit could not be separated from the learning that was being disseminated in the intellectual milieu of the time. Consequently, the Summa Contra Gentiles saw itself as rather a defense of the whole corpus of Christian thought in the face of Arab-Greek scientific conception of the universe that was henceforth to be part of the Western mentality. Here, of course, Shinu is speaking of engagement with Islamic thought. Burrell, on the other hand, suggests that Aquinas' own geographic and social origins could well have predisposed him to a closer relationship with thinkers representing the Islamic world than his contemporaries in Paris, at least, could be presumed to have had. For his provenance from Aquino in the region of Naples, itself part of the Kingdom of Sicily, reflected a face of Europe more open to the Islamic world. This is corroborated by the fact that following his initial education with the Benedictines in the monastery of Monte Cassino, he continued his studies at the University of Naples, which had just been established by Emperor Frederick II, a distant relative of his. This was prior to his entering the order of preachers. Furthermore, in his later years, when his Dominican province asked him to direct a theological studium, Aquinas expressly chose Naples for its strategic location. Cyril Michon appears to corroborate Chenu's assertion when he states that Aquinas is in dialogue with Averroes and Maimonides through large parts of the Summa Contra Gentiles, books one through three. While he engages in further debates with pagan philosophers, about God's immateriality at book one, chapter 20, about the intellect in book two, and implicitly about conceptions of happiness in book three. Therefore, the objective of Contra Gentiles books one through three is quite clear. Reason alone, Correct philosophy, including and based on correct reading and interpretation of Aristotle, leads to a large part of the Catholic faith and sometimes establishes truths that are proper to it. These two affirmations lead him to conclude that the whole of Contra Gentiles appears as a massive argument or a body of arguments for the truth of the Catholic faith. Most of them, the first three books, take as premises naturally knowable truths, both empirical and rational ones. But those of book four rely on revelation and defend its correct interpretation and articulate conclusions drawn from it. Furthermore, Michon draws a very interesting distinction between the goal of the Summa Theologiae and that of the Summa Contra Gentiles. Whereas the aim of the first is not so much to settle disputes over the truth as to reach understanding, 
The aim of the second is that of making the truths of faith understood. What is reached is not so much truth, the truth of faith per se, but the intellectus fidei. He therefore concludes, and here I quote, they both synthesize the Christian doctrine, but one aims at making the truth known, the other at making it understood. The first one relies as much as possible on natural knowledge and philosophy, and this philosophy made theology. The second proceeds only through rational arguments, and this theology made philosophy, or better, philosophy of faith. That having been said, one must take caution in categorizing the first three books as philosophical and the fourth as theological. In the world of Aquinas, philosophy was not as independent a science as it became in the wake of the nominalist movement. As Matthew Kostelicki has rightly affirmed, the first part of this work, that is the first three books of the Summa Contra Gentiles, proceeds according to a theological method, while restricting itself to the way of reason. This modus procedendi leads to what he describes as tensions that results from restricting the human truths about God to the natural capabilities of the intellect within an explicit theological endeavor. In spite of what must have been the reason behind its composition, the Summa Contra Gentiles speaks to a vast audience of scholars and intellectuals hailing from a variety of cultures. Also, to intellectuals and scholars hailing from a variety of religions and schools of philosophy throughout the ages. How can we approach the Summa Contra Gentiles? It can be safely assumed that Aquinas began writing the Summa Contra Gentiles sometime prior to June 1259 when both he and Albert the Great were present at the Dominican general chapter at Valenciennes. It was probably completed and revised by the autumn of 1265, just as Thomas was about to embark upon his Summa Theologiae. The main focus of Aquinas in the Summa Contra Gentiles is on truth and error in general. Taking his cue from the fathers of the church, he addresses three classes of interlocutors, namely heretics, that is to say those who claim to be Christian, but do not in fact embrace orthodox beliefs, Jews, to and through whom the Old Testament was revealed, but who contrary to Christian belief, do not acknowledge its Christological culmination, and Muslims and pagans, who though religious, acknowledge neither the Old nor the New Testament in their canonical form. As for the relevance of Aquinas, especially through his Summa Contra Gentiles, as a methodological guide in our quest for a fresh and renewed encounter with Islamic thought, the late Joseph Kenny has left us this interesting observation that I would like to quote. 
The arguments used in the Christian summas and in the Muslim books of Kalam, as to say, Muslim theological apologetics, are highly philosophical, but guided by what each tradition holds as revelation. They are at the same time books of apologetic theology and philosophy of religion. The first three of the four vo volumes of the Summa Contra Gentiles build carefully the shared vision held by Christians and Muslims alike. They bring supportive insight from Christian reflection, which has been foundational for the development of Western culture. In the present developments of interchange between East and West, these insights attained by reason in a context of deep faith can constitute a veritable treasure chest for Islamic thinkers as they build toward the future." End of quote. Matthew Costelicki is correct in assuming that the Summa Contra Gentiles is directed to one goal, an elucidation of the human knowledge of God. But he also went on to state that its investigation about God is also an inquiry into the nature of the human being who investigates God, thereby corroborating what he had already affirmed earlier, that Thomas's understanding of human nature is itself manifested in his account of the operation and power of the human intellect to know God, the intellect's most perfect object. The one who embarks upon such a mission is regarded by Thomas as being a wise man. In the Summa Contra Gentiles, the term wise, sapientes, is attributed to those who order things rightly and govern them well. However, the appellation absolutely wise man nomen autem simpliciter sapientis, is reserved for him whose consideration is directed to the end of the universe, which is also the origin of the universe. In this perspective, truth becomes the ultimate end of the whole universe. And the consideration of the wise man aims principally at this truth. That truth of Thomas is, of course, Jesus Christ, whose own words in John 18, 37, he quotes. He further elucidates his point by first detailing his terminus ad quem. The wise man, Aquinas tells us, has a twofold office. To meditate and speak forth the divine truth which is truth in person. Wisdom touches on this in the words, my mouth shall meditate truth and refute error, which wisdom touches upon in the words, and my lips shall hate impiety. By impiety is here meant falsehood against the divine truth. He later explains his rationale as to his assuming the mission of the wise man. This being that among all human pursuits, 
the pursuit of wisdom is more perfect, more noble, more useful, and more full of joy. In fulfilling such a mission, Aquinas would be making extensive use of sources that were not necessarily Christian. Certainly, sacred scripture and the fathers of the church figure prominently in this work. And they did play a significant role in shaping his thoughts. There is, however, another element which is equally important, and that is his abundant use of Aristotelian corpus, together with the works of Islamic philosophers, such as the eclectic Ibn Sina and the commentator par excellence of Aristotle Ibn Rushd. Here I wish to make a brief digression whose purpose will become clear as we proceed. Some 60 years before Thomas embarked upon the Summa Contra Gentiles, Ibn Rushd, the Latin of Averroes, had formulated a very interesting description of philosophy in the robust defense of the study of philosophy and logic which he penned under the title Kitab Fasl al-Maqal, the decisive treatise. He described this study of philosophy and logic as nothing more than reflection upon existing things and consideration of them insofar as they are an indication of the artisan. I mean, insofar as they are artifacts, for existing things indicate the artisan only through cognizance of the art in them. And the more complete cognizance of the art in them is, the more complete is cognizance of the artisan, that is God as the creator. What is known commonly in Arabic as falsafa, the corruption of the Greek philosophia in Arabic becomes theodicy, aiming to prove the existence of the creator and to provide a better understanding of God. In all this, it is necessary to point out that the full title of Ibn Rushd's treatise is The Book of the Decisive Treatise Determining the Connection between Sharia and wisdom. The title applies the term Hikmah, wisdom, to philosophy. One of the 99 most beautiful names of God is, in fact, Al-Hakim, the All-Wise. He is therefore implying that philosophy flows from divine wisdom. The fundamental difference between the approach taken by Ibn Rushd and Aquinas lies in the fact that the former was fighting for the survival of philosophy in the Islamic world of his time. Whereas when Thomas Aquinas is posing the question in the Summa Theologiae, whether besides philosophy, any further doctrine is required, he is implying that the existence of philosophy in Latin Christendom was a statement of fact. 
His question is whether another science is necessary besides philosophy. He therefore advances the argument in favor of reason enlightened by revelation. Let's come now to the De Rationibus Fidei. If we are to consider the method of Aquinas as a basis for a renewed engagement with Islamic thought in our times, then it is necessary to read the Summa Contra Gentiles in conjunction with the other work which he wrote towards the end of this one or almost immediately after its completion, namely his short treatise entitled De Rationibus Fidei Contra Saracenos Grecos et Armenos at Cantorem Antiochenum. This opusculum, very short treatise, was written during Aquinas' sojourn at Orvieto and directed at a much more limited audience. It is of itself a short work and was intended to reply to the objections and criticisms of, to the fundamental principles of the Catholic faith put forward mainly by some Muslim authorities. These objections were brought to the attention of Thomas by a cantor, probably an official, the Church of Antioch, by way of a letter in which he sought advice as to how one could give clear, concise, and convincing replies. The period in which Thomas lived was marked by separation from and relative ignorance of the Muslim religion. He himself admitted that he was not versed in his doctrines. The only exception concerned the situation of Christians in Muslim territories, which is clearly reflected in the comprehensive replies to the questions posed by the cantor of Antioch in order to be better equipped when facing the objections raised against Christian doctrine on the part of the Muslim scholars. The objections listed by the cantor are quoted in the introduction to the text. To these objections, Aquinas furnishes replies, which he divides into 10 chapters, two of which define the correct method to be undertaken as regards dialogue. Another addresses the objection raised by the Greeks and the Armenians whereas the remaining seven addresses the objections raised by the Muslims. Aquinas considers the questions posed as central to the Christian faith. The two fundamental dogmas being the confession of the Trinity and the mystery of the incarnation that led to the salvific suffering and death of Jesus Christ. These fundamental beliefs lead to the articulation of Christian hope in life everlasting and in divine grace that assists man in his journey towards salvation. As David Burrell remarks in, his short, in this short treatise, Thomas does not demonstrate any wish whatsoever to engage in polemics. Instead, he takes the opportunity to present a brief summary of Christian doctrine concerning those points identified by the cantor as being of particular importance to Muslims. 
he does not respond directly to the Muslim interlocutor. What he does is to furnish the cantor with a series of strategies in order to formulate an instructive and robust response that would take as a starting point the objections raised by Muslims in order to come up with an insightful presentation of the heritage of the Christian faith. In undertaking this task, Thomas teaches us that by taking as a point of departure the objections moved by Muslims, one might find better ways to come up with a clearer exposition of the principles of the Christian faith. The chapters of this brief treatise are so structured because they are centered upon the exhortation found in the first letter of Peter. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who calls you to account for the faith and the hope that is in you. This text quoted by Thomas in the first chapter of the treatise has something particular. Contrary to the original Greek text of the New Testament, which mentions only hope, the, virgin, the version which he uses adds to it the virtue of faith. As Gilles Emery has observed, the version chosen by Thomas serves a particular purpose, given that for him, the Christian faith is contained above all in the confession of the Trinity and the glorification of the cross. These two articles of faith contain the entire body of Christian doctrine. He is concerned with placing particular emphasis on the cross, which appears to have been the object of sarcasm among Muslim interlocutors in Antioch. Furthermore, he wanted to demonstrate that faith in the humanity of Christ is inextricably linked to the profession of faith in the cross. And here one must turn to the time-tested practice of analogy applied by Thomas, as well as by the fathers of the Oriental churches. Aquinas applies this method many times in Deratiolibus Fidei, when he conveys the meaning about what Christians believe about the intra-Trinitarian relationship word intellect, the incarnation, soul, body, the suffering and death of Jesus on the cross, the dignity of the one receiving the injury, and so forth. From what I have already stated, it is evident that the approach adopted by Aquinas in what concerns disputations with fellow scholars depended upon their level of belief and their level of engagement. He refers to this approach in both the Summa Contra Gentiles, Book 1, Chapter 2, and in De Rationibus Fidei, Chapter 2, as well as in the Quod Libertales, Book 4, which Thomas wrote after having finished both of these works. In the Quod Libertales, we are presented with his most comprehensive approach to the matter, one in which he expresses himself with the utmost clarity. And here I wish to uh, quote the relevant part.
And he says this, each act should be performed in a way conducive to its end. Now debates aim at one of two ends. Some debates aim to remove doubts about whether this or that is the case. In theological debates of this kind, most use should be made of the authority accepted by both parties to the debate. In a debate with Jews, for example, appeal should be made to the authority of the Old Testament. With Manichaeans who reject the Old Testament, only the New Testament should be used as an authority. With schismatics who accept the new and the old, but not the teaching of our saints, that's to say the saints of the West, we have to debate them using the authority of the Old and New Testament and the teachers they accept. With those who accept no authority, however, we have to rely on natural reason alone to convince them. Other debates involve masters at schools and are not about correcting errors, but about instructing the audience and helping them understand the truth that they already believe. In this case, reason should be used to get at the heart of the truth and enable them to know just how it is true. If the master settles the question by mere authority instead, the audience will certainly be assured that this or that is the case, but they will not acquire any knowledge or understanding of it, thus going away empty. It is obvious that the method adopted by St. Thomas sought first and foremost a common ground upon which a healthy debate could take place. Where sacred scripture or part of it was acknowledged by all those involved, then this could form a basis of discussion. Where sacred scripture was in no way accepted, then the sole use of natural reason was the only way forward. As stated already, Thomas had already espoused the same approach in the two previously mentioned works. Here, perhaps, it would be appropriate to discuss the meaning of the term natural reason, which he uses in these contexts in all three works. According to Brian Davies, this term denotes philosophical insight or philosophy or just reason. In fact, in the words of Davies, Aquinas is referring to what we can figure out on our own by trying to think well and clearly without recourse to anything that we might take to be divine revelation. More specifically, however, he is thinking of reason as able to demonstrate certain truths. This means that he is going to try to demonstrate certain things about God, while adding that he will also be arguing that what he has demonstrated accords with Orthodox Christian teaching. But then, Thomas includes something else, namely that of instruction, directed at helping others understand the truth that they already believe. Here he advises the use of reason as a means for articulating divine teaching, thereby aiding the faithful toward deepening their faith. This is in fact the rationale suggested by the Summa Contra Gentiles and the Derationibus Fidei to say nothing of the monumental Summa Theologiae. 
What remains to be considered is whether, and if so, how such a plan is relevant today in the ever-evolving debate between Christian and Muslim scholarship. Certainly, in such encounters, one does not seek a winner or a loser. The principal and ultimate aim is that of achieving clarity of presentation through clarity in communication. Aquinas was occupied with removing misunderstandings about what both parties might hold to be true and about what they assumed to be the fundamental beliefs of the other. It is incumbent upon all those involved to pose precise questions, but also to provide clear answers. Undoubtedly, a level of agreement, albeit limited, can be achieved. One must, however, accept that much disagreement will occur. These cannot be brushed aside. They have to be accepted as an integral part of our human nature. However, such agreement must be stated clearly and accurately by all parties involved. Here it is paramount that Christian scholars offer the right understanding of what the Christian faith holds about the two fundamental dogmas upon which it stands, namely the Trinity and the Incarnation, both of which are flatly denied by the Quran. Although one has to add here that the Trinity that is being rejected in the Quran is by no means that espoused by the Christian faith. Taking their cue from Thomas and from the fathers of the church before him, Christian scholars are called upon to articulate the meaning of such dogmas in order to distinguish truth from falsity in the way they are understood. It involves understanding what an intelligent Muslim scholar thinks about he or she knows about the Christian faith. It also involves responding to such concerns by applying concepts that he or she would understand. However, it is also imperative to note another common thread that flows through all the three above mentioned works. Aquinas succeeds in formulating a robust defense of Christian dogma in the wake of criticism leveled by non-Catholic and non-Christian scholars while sustaining a heightened awareness of the necessity to deepen one's own Christian faith in the face of such challenges. Here he embraces the Dominican tradition in and through which study and contemplation become interchangeable. Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI has exquisitely portrayed this indissoluble bond in the life and works of Aquinas when referring to the perennial validity of the Summa Theologiae. And I would like to quote this excerpt, wherein the Pope says, in this reflection, in meeting the true questions of his time that are also often our own questions, St. Thomas, also by employing the method and thought of the ancient philosophers and of Aristotle in particular, 
thus arrives at precise, lucid, and pertinent formulations of the truth of faith, in which truth is a gift of faith, shines out and becomes accessible to us for our reflection. However, this effort of the human mind, Aquinas reminds us with his own life, is always illumined by prayer, by the light that comes from on high. Only those who live with God and with his mysteries can also understand what they say to us. End of quote. One must neither lose sight of the facts that Christian-Muslim encounters are essentially encounters involving believers. It is obvious that our knowledge of Islam as a religion and of the roots of its fundamental teachings has notably developed since the 13th century. And even during that period, the term unbeliever, infidel, was not equivalent to non-believer. It simply meant somebody who denied the core beliefs of the other without denying belief in the divine. Whereas the passion of Thomas for the truth could in no way have been quashed or compromised, the methodology that he adopted was one of dialogue. His abiding principle was that one was considered not who said what, but what was being said. Such a maxim spurred him on to confront and refute all opposition against the use of pagan and non-Christian authors. He was open to the truth from wherever it originated, precisely because, following the glossa of Ambrosiaster, he was convinced that every truth, by whomever it may be said, is from the Holy Spirit, in the sense that he imparts the natural light and that he moves the mind to understand and utter the truth. Thomas Aquinas paves the way for our journey when he affirms that the good for, which, for man lies in knowing the truth, and his sovereign good lies not in knowing any sort of truth, but perfect knowledge of the supreme truth, as Aristotle shows. In today's world and in the present circumstances, one might take Aquinas' statement a step further and argue also for the need to honor human dignity in order to seek such truth. This point was very recently highlighted by Archbishop Jan Jurkovic, Apostolic Nuncio and permanent observer of the Holy See to the United Nations in Geneva, at the presentation of the book entitled The Promotion of Intercultural and Interreligious Dialogue as an Instrument for Peace and Fraternity, an event that took place in Jeddah in Saudi Arabia. In his speech delivered during the event, he affirmed, and here I will quote a short excerpt, human beings are created in the image and likeness of God in their moral, spiritual, and intellectual and bodily composition. They are part of his plan and therefore must not be deprived in any way of their humanity, which is the source of one's dignity or of their right to seek and express truth. While human dignity is the premise that allows a dialogue among different cultures, also non-religious ones, 
the pursuit of truth permits an authentic encounter between various religions, religious confessions. Aquinas's engagement with Muslim scholars offers supportive insight for Christian reflection, which has for centuries laid the foundations for Western culture in general and European culture in particular. Today, we are all the more aware of living in a multi-religious society that is constantly confronting and challenging the hitherto uncontested dogmas of secularist culture. In the present culture of globalization, the insights of Aquinas still constitute an invitation to clarify our positions as Christians and Muslims within our respective communities and the willingness to look forward toward a dialogue of cooperation rather than conflict. Thank you very much for your patience. Father, we have a question from someone who can't turn their microphone on. Okay. Um, and she asks, did Thomas write on Mohammed? Well, if by write on Mohammed, uh, he or she means a biography or something biographical, no. But if you take a look at um, uh, the Summa Contra Gentiles, book one, chapter six, he does uh, speak of Muhammad in uh, not very complimentary ways. Um, uh, of course, he was uh, speaking within a context of certain uh, ignorance of the life and the preaching of the Prophet of Islam. And most of what he said had already been said centuries before him. So he was not saying anything new. Um, so what he basically said was um, mainly what many scholars before him had said, that uh, the Quran was a perversion of the Bible, that uh, Muhammad was in fact uh, one who sowed um, uh, dissension um, and spread falsities. Um, if uh, one takes a look at uh, Dante Alighieri's um, uh, Divina Commedia, we see this, uh, Muhammad is uh, condemned in the Divina Commedia as, in fact, one who disseminates discord. But as I said, this was uh, um, uh, a time of the great unknown. Not even the Catholic tradition was known to Muslims for that matter. I mean, what was known um, in Arabia at the time of the Prophet uh, was not Orthodox Christianity. It was rather peripheral Christianity, um, uh, fringe movements that had departed from the Christian faith or else Christian communities that had um, uh, separated from uh, Eastern Orthodoxy such as the Assyrians, the uh, Copts, and so forth. So in answer to her question, uh, what he did write was very brief. And again, um, uh, it was a reflection of the times. Hey, you Father. Um, thanks very much for that. That was really enjoyable. Yeah, so I just have a small question. And it's to do with um, what we're striving after in uh, interreligious uh, dialogue. Uh, you mentioned the uh, virtues of clarity in thought, clarity in communication. Yes. I'm also wondering, is there a teleology to interreligious dialogue, which has as its goal um, an, an arrival at some sort of truth? Um, 
what I'm interested in is where truth or veritas fits into all of this. I don't think that um, one would uh, get to that point in the same uh, uh, manner. Um, uh, one has to keep in mind that um, um, in the Muslim tradition, the concept is, or better still, let me put it this way. Back in 1983, there was a very interesting uh, debate about the first charter of uh, human rights in Islam that was uh, published, uh, or rather that was um, inaugurated um, in, uh, in Paris. Uh, it was uh, publicized there at the UNESCO headquarters in Paris. And an interesting article that uh, appeared in Islamo Christiana, uh, the uh, review of the Pontifical Institute for Arabic and Islamic Studies, uh, one of the authors uh, of this uh, issue, uh, Professor Lucie Provost, was also my professor, um, uh, she came up with a very interesting um, comparison or contrast rather, uh, that might uh, help answer your question. Uh, she was talking about the anthropology that is found in uh, Islam and in uh, John Paul II, in the theology of John Paul II. And she came up with a very interesting observation. She said that with Islam, everything be begins with God and ends in God, uh, returns to God. In the anthropology of John Paul II, everything begins with the concept of man who is cast in the image of God and finds its, its fulfillment in the resurrected Christ. So for us, truth is Jesus Christ. Huh? Uh, a Muslim would disagree with that. Great, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you very much for this very fine lecture. Uh, as you well know, St. Thomas drew heavily on the thought of Avicenna for the famous essence-existence distinction. Yes. So important for his own conception of God and creatures. Would you care to say something about the positive value of the teachings of Avicenna and also the Libre de Causis, the Kalamfi Mahtacher, in the thought of St. Thomas? Of course, it's from the latter, the Libre de Causis, that Thomas takes the notion yes, of God yes, as yes. Well, actually, one can say that Thomas with uh, his uh, Thomas relation, uh, you wanted to ask another question? No, please proceed. Okay, thank you. Uh, the Perhaps the issue with, uh, with Avicenna was on uh, different levels. Of course, he, was, he deeply absorbed the thoughts of Avicenna, uh, Ibn Sina, in his early career. As you pointed out, essence and existence, necessary and, posit and uh, possible uh, uh, existence, um, uh, and so forth. Uh, however, um, one notices that as he progressed in his uh, teaching and his reflection, and especially with the introduction of Ibn Rushd, it's not that he cast away uh, Avicenna, but he appears to have absorbed what he had to absorb. And on the other hand, he's matured his reflection in a way that he 
disagreed with certain things of Avicenna. For example, with the theory of emanations, uh, that from the one, only one proceeds, uh, and other uh, cases. As regards the Liber de Causis, as you know, well, uh, that was one uh, of the last um, works uh, of, uh, of Thomas. And it was, in fact, him uh, who realized that it was not Aristotelian at all. Um, uh, certainly, in uh, the Liber de Causis did uh, help Thomas um, uh, have a more um, how can I put it, uh, get a more deeper approach uh, to Neoplatonic uh, thought. Uh, and, uh, and especially, especially uh, uh, the fact of the inexpressibility uh, of God, uh, uh, the, uh, the mystical um, notion uh, that uh, came out of his uh, theology in his later years. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Farah, I have a question. You did, uh, you talked about Islam and uh, the, the, the Aquinas and the Fat and some of the uh, medieval authors equated the Islam uh, with the pagans. Uh, as um, in the analysis, uh, uh, you talked about the, the Russian, uh, the, 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 some of the write-ups of Aquinas. So uh, how did, uh, did you agree or how do daily, uh, they, did Islam actually not accept the Old Testament nor the New Testament as, as these people actually said? No, 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 no. I said that, that with Muslims and with pagans, uh, they accept neither the Old nor the New in their canonical form, as they are now, that is to say. Okay, but actually in the Quran, you see there are a lot of references uh, to the Old Testament and- uh, Yes, of course you find, yes. But whether the Old Testament and the New Testament in their present form are acceptable uh, to the Quran, that is an altogether different question. And the answer is no. That is why, in fact, there is the accusation leveled against the Jews, but also um, uh, later on extended also to Christians, the accusation of tahrif, uh, manipulation uh, of the text, tampering with the text. Okay, but how did the fathers address the, the, uh, the, the, the Islam as uh, why that, um, uh, that uh, why did they equate Islam with pagans? Is it, uh, what, is it uh, apart from that, is there any other thing that they had in mind apart from the issue of Old and New Testament to-, to No, 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 what I'm, yeah, what I'm saying was that first of all, um, on one level, Islam was considered as a heresy. Uh, it's not fair to say that Islam, that Islam uh, was equated with heresy, with, uh, sorry, with paganism. Uh, Aquinas, put Muslims and pagans uh, in the third category of those who accept neither the old or the new. Aquinas did not say that Muslims were pagans. Okay. He did not believe that. 